invite you to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, one of the minor prophets, as we continue our sermon series of minor prophets called Light in the Darkness. <clears throat> uh, we don't have pew Bibles, so I can't give you a page number, but I will tell you a little secret. Bibles have tables of contents. So if you ever can't find the book we're looking for, just look it up in the table of contents. Through this uh, 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 sermon series, I've been doing some uh, inserts to give you some background on these unfamiliar books of the Minor Prophets, and then also the, uh, the sermon outline is provided there, so I encourage you to avail yourself of those and help follow along with those. <clears throat> One of the things that's interesting about the book of Jonah is that unlike most of the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah is focused more on the man than on the message he delivered. It is more autobiographical than oracle. And as a consequence of that, to rightly understand the message that comes through Jonah, we need to know something about Jonah. And so we will spend some time this morning taking a look at some of the the uh, background information that will help us understand him. As we do so, as we go through his story, I will point out uh, key verses there, so you'll want to keep the the book of Jonah open. I will have you flipping to some other passages as well, but uh, stay ready to turn back to Jonah, and we'll follow along and look at some of those key verses. Before we go any further, let's pray and ask the Lord's leading and understanding his word. Spirit of God, you have given us the book of Jonah, a message that is contained in a little different format than some of the other books, a message that is contained in the story of this man's life, or at least a small part of it. So we ask for your wisdom and guidance and understanding it, that we would draw out of it the lessons you have for us today, and that we would be encouraged to go back and to, to pour over this portion of your word, to meditate upon it, and to... to see in it a, a fresh uh, revelation of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, as we go along here, as you're... Sorry about that. If you're following along in the sermon notes, you'll notice that there are two sermon points, and usually the way sermon points are done is it's linear. We, move, we talk about the one, and then we move on to the other, but not so this morning, but rather we will be jumping back and forth between those two sermon points as we go. So keep an eye on that. I will try to point out when I've jumped between one or the other. But like I said, first of all, a little time understanding Jonah and his, uh, uh, his time and place in history. So Jonah 1, 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And right away I'm going to stop and ask you to flip over to 2 Kings chapter 14. Remember, keep Jonah, mark it somehow. But slip over to 2 Kings chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse uh, uh, 23. 2 Kings 14, 23. Give you a moment to get there. You don't have the advantage of putting post-it notes in your Bible beforehand like I do. So it takes you a little longer. I cheat. It takes you a little longer to get there. 2 Kings 14. Starting in verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, and this is going to be an important man for our story, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. That was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. We have two Jeroboams here. They're about 160 years apart, and they're no relation to each other. We're worried about the one that's listed first in the text, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, or Jeroboam the second, uh, if you have a list of the kings of Israel. Uh, <clears throat> verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Leboth Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was, uh, was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. And perhaps we should understand that it had not yet said. Next week we'll see the prophecy of Amos to the same nation. Um, the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath the Judah uh, to Israel, uh, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. <clears throat> Go ahead and turn back to Jonah now. So a couple of things here. First of all, you see the, the, the tie between the two texts. We have Jonah, the son of Amittai, in both texts. And the, the one in Kings sets the stage for the historical circumstances into which Jonah ministered. And if we're going to understand Jonah the man and the book, we need to understand something of those circumstances. In case you weren't, if you're unfamiliar with the language of a book like Kings, that paragraph, I, or two paragraphs I read there, is really the, the, the way the Kings, the author of Kings, is trying to say this. <clears throat> Jeroboam II was an evil man in the sight of God, but he did really good things in the sight of the world. He was an evil man in the sight of God, but did really good things in the sight of the world. You notice the wording there that in 2 Kings, that under him, the borders were extended back to a certain place and a certain river and a certain sea and a certain this, and that certain cities were brought back under Israel's control. To understand that, we need to understand a little something of what's been going on. You remember King Solomon, you've heard of King Solomon, glorious king, wealthy man. His reign was in a lot of ways the, the high water mark of the kingdom of God on the earth. Under Solomon, Solomon consolidated the gains of his father David and, can, and extended those to some degree. And under Solomon, uh, the nation of Israel as a united whole was at its highest Point. The borders were extended the farthest, and uh, there was peace, there was prosperity, there was a lot of good things happening under King Solomon. Solomon, what would, would be for, the, the reign of Solomon would be known as the good old days, if we were to use our idiom. Upon Solomon's death, the nation divided. Jeroboam I, the son of Nabat that we just read about, he took the northern tribes and they became the nation known as Israel, retained the name Israel. The southern tribes became the nation known as Judah, taking its name from the major tribe of the south. And the nation split. So for 160 years, the nation has been, the, the, the people of God have been two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And in the north, every single king 
has been listed the way this Jeroboam II was listed, as doing what was evil in the sight of God. There have been no upright, godly kings in the north. And as a consequence, the north fell almost immediately into trouble. Within a generation of the divide between the north and south, the north had collapsed. It was a mere shell of the glory days of Solomon. Its borders were pulled way back. It had really lost its sovereignty. It had lost its wealth. It had lost its standing among the mighty nations of the world. And the consequence from an earthly perspective, not the consequence, the reason from an earthly perspective was the nation of Assyria. Assyria to the north. Now, the capital of Assyria is a city called Nineveh. Nineveh. Uh, it is a, if you're familiar with modern-day Mosul in Iraq, the second largest city in Iraq, Nineveh would be right across the river, the Tigris River, from the modern-day city of Mosul. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria became a mighty nation, and it rose to power, and it began to dominate the people of God. So that for 160 years before uh, 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 Jonah, they have had to pay tribute. And tribute, if you're not familiar with how that way that worked in the ancient world, it basically works like this. A powerful nation comes in, they march their armies right up to your doorstep, and they say, you have a choice. You can pay us tribute, and we'll leave you on the throne, O king, or we will destroy you. The choice is yours. Most of the kings of the ancient world chose to pay the tribute. And so for 160 years, the wealth of Israel has been flowing into the coffers of Assyria. And its borders have shrunk so that its control extends to Samaria and just a few of the cities and villages within a a, a couple dozen miles radius of Samaria. But then something happens. Jonah comes on the scene. And as we read there in 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah foretells a time when Israel will again uh, uh, experience uh, success on the world stage in glory. And we see that it's Jeroboam II who is God's man to accomplish these things. The borders expand. The, the, the wealth, they, they throw off the yoke of Assyria. They stop sending their tribute to Assyria. And so the wealth begins to grow. And we're going to see next week, Amos talks a great deal about the wealth of Israel. Amos is a, a contemporary of Jonah. The, Amos's uh, uh, Ministry probably overlapped the end of Jonah's life, from what we can tell. Um, uh, and so we're going to see that there's, there's this restoration, this, this neo-golden age of Israel. It borders back nearly to the, to the lengths of Solomon's days. Almost the same territory, almost the same level of wealth, almost the same standing in the world. And it was Jonah who foretold that. Now, in case you can't figure this one out on your own. What's better? A prophet that prophesies good news or bad news? Who do we like more? I mean, think about it today. Who calls up a negative psychic? Who goes to a palm reader who's a downer? Even today, when we look for things about the future, I mean, do you keep going back to the same Chinese restaurant when the fortune cookie is always bad news? We want happy prophets. And Jonah was a happy news prophet. He said, listen, things are going to get better. And they did. And Israel is enjoying a time of boom. That's key. Here's another key. From an earthly perspective, 
There's a reason that happened. Jeroboam came to the throne around 585 B.C. In 583 B.C., two years later, remember B.C. works downward, two years later, a, 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 a man by the name of Adad-Nirari III, emperor, king of Assyria, with his capital in Nineveh, died. Now, Adad-Nirari III was a capable, if cruel, leader. And he dies in 583. So from an earthly perspective, now, God had foretold the rise of Israel through Jonah, but from an earthly perspective, what's going on? Well, the good, uh, not good, but the strong, uh, able king in Assyria, in Nineveh, has died. And in the aftermath of his death, his descendants are weak leaders, and there is internal strife. There is civil war breaking out throughout the empire. And the kings in Assyria are all of a sudden scrambling to keep their place on the throne. They can give no attention to the outlying areas. And in fact, the records show that one of his descendants appears to have never left the palace during his entire 14 months of reign. It's a mess in Nineveh. And so Assyria is collapsing. And in the collapse of Assyria, Israel is able to fill that vacuum, that power vacuum in the geopolitical stage, uh, situation of the earth. And that's where we see what's going on. So the, the picture is this. For 160 years, the Assyrians have been oppressing Israel, taxing Israel, threatening Israel, taking Israel's territory and wealth and prestige. And now Assyria is on the verge of collapse. If you are an Israelite, you're cheering. You're excited about it. You can't wait to read the headlines on tomorrow's paper about what else has gone wrong in Assyria. What else has befallen Nineveh? This is the best news you have had in your lifetime or your father's lifetime or your grandfather's lifetime. Assyria is collapsing. You know, we've, we often don't consider that. We don't think about that perspective. And we often uh, uh, read Jonah and teach Jonah and preach Jonah as though this guy just, just, for whatever random reason, just decided to run the other direction. But when you recognize what's going on in the world, it's not hard to see what comes next in Jonah. Join me again in Jonah chapter 1. We're starting again at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is not running just for the sake of running. It's not like he's doing this with no earthly reason. From an earthly perspective, I think we can relate to him. And in fact, here in America, we have a hard time relating to him because we don't really, we've not really experienced this kind of oppression for generations. The closest thing I can think of in America would be this. Imagine for a moment that God came to a black minister and said, go preach to the Klan. 
Go be my voice to redeem the Ku Klux Klan. Can you imagine a black minister in that situation? Seriously, Lord? These people have terrorized us for centuries. They have oppressed us. They have fought to keep us down. And you want me to preach to them? That's Jonah's situation. That he would run suddenly makes a lot more sense. The map in the handout shows you where Tarshish is in relative to Nineveh. He is going in the opposite direction. He is looking to get as far away in the known world. They didn't cross the Atlantic back then. The world ended in Spain and Tarshish is in Spain. That was the edge of the earth. And that's where he's headed. Quick sidebar. Why is he headed there? I just said it was because he doesn't want the people of Nineveh to be redeemed, to be saved. But why are they going to be saved? You notice the wording here. Um, uh, 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 Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You might say, well, that's, that's a prophet's dream. To go pronounce God's judgment on your enemies? The people who have been terrorizing you and your father and your father's fathers? Sign me up. I can't wait to go preach condemnation on their head. We are often quick to want to preach condemnation upon those whom we see as our enemies or God's enemies. Flip forward for just a moment to Jonah 4, verse 2. Jonah 4, verse 2. And he, Jonah, uh, Jonah 4, 2. And he, Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah doesn't want to preach doom and gloom on Nineveh because doom and gloom was never preached for its own sake. The point that the, for the prophets bringing a message of doom was not so that God could taunt them. It was not so the people of God could rejoice over them. It was so they would repent. God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And Jonah doesn't want to go preach condemnation on Nineveh because Jonah understands what that means. If I warn them of the coming judgment, they might repent. And if they repent, I know God. He'll forgive them. How could he do that? And Jonah wants no part of the salvation of Nineveh. That's why he runs. He tells us why he runs. You know, one lesson, it's just it's not it's a minor point in the sermon, but one lesson we ought to learn here is that the preaching of hellfire, the preaching of, of condemnation, the preaching of doom, the pronouncement of woe, when we see it in the scriptures, we should never look at it as an indication of God being mean-spirited. 
We should never buy into the uh, cartoon that shows God as this grumpy old man in heaven just throwing lightning bolts at helpless people. The preaching of woe, the preaching of doom, is always meant by God to be a means by which people avoid destruction. It's why some years later, after uh, Jonah, God would say through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 18, if I have pronounced doom on a nation, and it repents and turns to me, I will relent and not bring about the disaster I had foretold. You know, we have this way of thinking about the word of God. We, we, we have this tendency to say the word of God is always going to come to be. We've got to be a little careful with that. We've got to be a little more nuanced in our theology. The word of God is not always going to come to be. God himself says it will not always come to be. And one of the reasons he warns us of damnation is so we can avoid damnation. That is love. What mother does not yell at her child as he's running into the street? She doesn't worry about if the child's feelings are going to be hurt. She doesn't worry. Stop! There's danger ahead. Because I love you, I don't want you going any further. The pronouncements of woe and condemnation we see in the Minor Prophets must always be remembered this way. It's God's care. He's yelling out, stop. I love you. Don't go down that path. We pick up now in verse uh, 5. Jonah, quick with the story here. So Jonah gets on the ship to Tarshish. You can say he goes down into, he goes down to the belly of the ship and he falls asleep. They they set sail and he falls asleep in the ship. Um, the ship, a storm occurs out on the Mediterranean Sea, and the ship is being tossed about out on the sea. And uh, the men become afraid for their lives, and they are calling out to their pagans. They don't know the true God. They're calling out to their own gods, each to his own God, each looking for some way to be saved. And then we read in verse 5, <clears throat> Then the mariners were afraid, and each uh, cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. I guarantee you, if you take any training in evangelism, evangelism explosion, Campus Crusade for Christ, the Alpha program, whatever the newest and latest training in evangelism is, this is not the model. When your neighbors are going through the storms of their life, be sure you ignore them. When those around you are afraid for eternity, go to sleep and say nothing. Jonah is the worst possible evangelist. He should have been on deck going, guys, stop, stop calling out to your gods. I know how to fix this. I know the true God. Now, he does eventually get around to doing that. But it's not of his own initiative. Jonah is a bad, bad evangelist. What happens next is they come down into the ship, they wake Jonah, they rouse him, they say, what are you doing? 
call out to your God. You, we know you're a different nationality than us, so we're sure you have your own God. Maybe your God can help us. And Jonah says, I know my God can help us. My God is the maker of the sea. He is the creator of the earth and the sea. And he says to them, but praying isn't going to get it done. This is happening because I have run away from my God. This is my God's chastisement of me. Perhaps Jonah saw it as final judgment on him. And he says to them, throw me overboard. That's interesting. He doesn't jump overboard. Can't bring himself to do it. (laughs) Throw me overboard. And they say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So they keep trying and they keep fighting. And finally, he says, guys, just give it up. Throw me overboard. They throw him overboard, and the seas calm down. I'm going to, based on what we're going to see in chapter 2, I'm going to guess they didn't calm down quite immediately, but they do eventually settle down. And we look at chapter 1, verse 14. Therefore they, the the mariners, called out to, remember the all caps, L-O-R-D, is the proper name of the covenant God of the Bible. This is the name he gave Moses at the burning bush. These pagans, they call out to Yahweh. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And here we have the first of those major sermon points. The unexpected targets of God's salvation. The unexpected targets of God's salvation. These pagans don't even know the true God. They're worshipping all manner of false gods. They aren't coming to the Lord through his temple in Jerusalem. They aren't uh, getting circumcised and coming, you know, joining Israel in the right way. They are pagans. And yet God saves them. And they begin to call. What did we see last week in Joel? All who call upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. And they begin to call upon the name of Yahweh. They have worshipped other gods for all of their lives. They are tattooed with the emblems of other gods. They are pierced through with the jewelry that marks them as servants of other gods. They are as foul as you can imagine, making all manner of disgusting sacrifice to their other gods. They are what you expect out of mariners in the ancient world, or for that matter, much of the modern world. And God saves them. The targets of God's salvation are routinely shocking to us. They are unexpected. We jump down to the other point. I told you we're going to go back and forth between them. Think about the unexpected tactic he uses. The horrible, terrible, no good, very bad evangelism of Jonah. That is encouragement to me. It's amazing how often I don't witness to anybody because I haven't witnessed to them. Well, I've known him for years, and by this point, if I've not said anything, I just look like, I, you know, what am I gonna, how am I going to speak up now and say anything? I just look like a moron because I haven't said anything for the last four years. No! Better late than never. Better terrible evangelism than no evangelism. Better a horrible witness than none at all. 
Jonah is a bad witness, but he does eventually tell them about the true God. And that's all it takes. God does the rest, as he always does. No matter how good your testimony is or how bad your testimony is, it's the Spirit of God at work to make it happen. The unexpected targets of the salvation we see here in Jonah are pagans who do not know the Lord. And the unexpected tactic of salvation is the horrible testimony of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 is the account of his prayer. Jonah is probably writing this book quite a while later in his life and uh, uh, reflecting back on what happened. It's often labeled as Jonah's prayer, but if you read it closely, uh, I'd encourage you this afternoon to read it in more detail. It's really much of it is not actually a prayer per se, but rather Jonah reflecting on praying. It's a talk about his prayer with some elements of his prayer in there. There's some interesting things we see happening here. When we look at places like uh, uh, verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and billows passed over me. Like I said, I think for a time the storm didn't calm immediately when he hit the water. We often portray it that way, but this would imply that he spent some time in the storm-tossed seas. So that the storm didn't die down immediately. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. He is sinking down into the water. Boy, you want to talk about a terrifying memory. I don't know if you've ever had a a, a near-death type of experience. I've had two. One where I thought I was on the verge of falling off from a roof, and one where I thought I had killed one of my children because of them falling off from something. Both of them haunted me for years afterwards in my nightmares. I would wake up in cold sweats reliving those terrible moments in my life. And it's interesting, I've got to believe this is happening to Jonah. What a horrible moment to be sinking down into the water. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, now you say, well, your, your life never, you, you weren't, didn't faint away, you were saved. But remember, at that moment, this is what he thought was happening. As he reflects on it, he, he thought his life was fainting away. He thought he was dead. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It's amazing how many of us won't pray in these circumstances. My life's a train wreck. It's coming apart at the seams. The wheels have come off. Everything is going wrong. But it's my fault. And so i got to fix it. It's not the message of Jonah. The message of Jonah is that even when it's all your fault, your God will intervene. Call out to him. You got yourself into this mess. You cannot get yourself out of it. Call out to him. And Jonah does. In writing the book, Jonah chooses to tell us the means of his salvation before he reflects on how he got there. So we back up now to to chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three days. 
nights. The unexpected target of salvation is this faithless prophet. It's one thing for pagans to not worship the true God. They didn't know him. Okay, I can see, yeah, they're, they're a grimy group, and they're, they have foul language and womanizing, and a woman in every port, and they're a terrible. But hey, they didn't know any better. I can see how God will forgive them. But Jonah, surely the principle of this, the parable of the talents, right? I mean, Jonah, to him who has been, much has been uh, given, much will be required. And if you, are, uh, if you are faithless with a little, even that will be taken away from you. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Jonah, you had your chance. You knew the Lord. You ran away from him. Enough. What would we say in our own human parlance? Fool me once, shame on you. But fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not giving you another, another chance. I'm not giving you a second opportunity to hurt me. But God intervenes and says, I love Jonah. And though he has run from me, though he has turned his back on me, though he's refused to obey me, though he's in a predicament of his own making, nevertheless I will save him. The unexpected target of salvation is a prophet who's been faithless and turned away from God. And what about that unexpected tactic of salvation? Can you imagine? Jonah's sinking the, the life is fading from him. He's beginning to black out. I'm sure his last words were not, oh good, a fish. There is no way he saw that as salvation. There is no way he imagined that as something to his benefit. And then we read at the end of chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I was a teenager in high school getting ready for school one morning when I heard the sound of steps down the hallway. I didn't know what the commotion was all about. And my father came tearing around the corner. I'm standing in the bathroom at the mirror getting ready for school. My father comes around the corner. I'm in his way. He can't get to the top. He throws up all over me. Vomits on me. That's bad. It would be far worse to be part of the vomit. Jonah is now lying on that shore, stinking of stomach acid and partially digested uh, a mackerel. I don't know what the great fish ate. His skin is raw from the stomach acid eating away at it. His hair, if it's left, is a mess. He reeks to high heaven. He is waterlogged, and now he's shaken, baked. The sand's all stuck to him. His life looks terrible in that moment. And I'm going to guess not a few passers-by would have said, you're better off dead, to which Jonah would have said, amen. I'd be better off dead. The unexpected tactic of God's salvation was not visible to Jonah in that moment. He could not see the fish as God's way out. You know, I thought about a different title for this sermon. 
One, this is the alternative title I pondered for a moment. If life stinks, maybe it's because you're being saved. If life stinks, maybe it's because you're being saved. In the midst of it, it isn't always pretty. In the midst of it, it isn't always obvious. But you trust the Lord. Continue to walk with Him. Continue to hope in Him. And one day, you will look back, as Jonah did, and write of the glory of God and His faithfulness in your life. The unexpected target of salvation were pagans on the ship. The unexpected tactic was the terrible testimony of Jonah. The unexpected target of salvation was a faithless prophet. The unexpected tactic of salvation was a great fish and the vomit he produced. And then we read in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It would take that long to walk across the width of Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he's gone into the heart of the city, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I want to pause right there. Dear parent working with the children in your home, dear grandparent working with the grandbabies, Dear Sunday school teacher, women's ministry leader, men's ministry leader, dear pastor, recognize what was just said here. The people heard Jonah, but they believed God. When we are faithful to deliver God's word, it's God at work and not us. They heard Jonah, they believed God. Continuing, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Apparently Jonah didn't directly minister to the king, but but it got there. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles... Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in, uh, in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We must recognize, especially after now that we've done our sermon series in the book of Acts, we need to recognize that many of the sermons recorded in Scripture are but abbreviations. They are but a, 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 a theme sentence about the sermon. So when we read here that Jonah goes into Nineveh and he preaches uh, uh, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed, that was not the entirety of his message. Somehow these people know that the the God of Jonah is a gracious God. That there's a hope 
there, that he will relent. Probably Jonah has been telling his own story. I'm sure he's showered and put on some clean clothes, but maybe the rash on the skin is still there. Maybe the hair hasn't grown back. Maybe he's got bite marks from that fish. Whatever the case, he's pronouncing God's threat. You have 40 days to turn it around. But let me tell you, if you do, what will happen. I, too, was running from God. And he saved me in the most bizarre way. You aren't going to believe the story. Let me tell you about it. The message of Jonah in Nineveh was not only a message of God's doom. It was a message of God's grace as well. That's why the king knows to humble himself, to seek the, the, the grace of that God. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There may not be a better word in the scriptures. We touched on this last week with Joel. There may not be a better word in the scriptures than that word right there, two words, God relented. That what was meant for us, what was our destiny under one set of circumstances has become a new destiny, a change of destination. We see here, again, the unexpected targets of God's salvation. It's one thing for the pagans on the ship who do not know the true God. It's another thing for a prophet who has temporarily turned away from the true God. But now we're talking about the Assyrians, the Ninevites. They have invaded Israel. They have occupied Israel, been the sovereign over Israel for 160 years. They know who Israel's God is. But they've come to believe that he is impotent. We have not seen anything from this God. We have dominated his people for 160 years. Clearly, there is no God of any renown in Israel. These are the absolute, utter enemies of God. They have opposed him openly, defied him, mocked him. And in fact, in a couple of generations, one of the descendants of this king will actually stand on the doorstep of Jerusalem. You can read about it in the prophecy in, in Kings or in the prophecy of Isaiah. He will actually do exactly that. He will mock the God of Israel and Judah as unable to save. But in this moment, the Spirit of God works repentance in the hearts of this king, in the heart of this king and of his people. And they repent. They turn to the God of Jonah, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God who would come to earth as Jesus. And they say, save us. Be merciful to us. The unexpected targets of God's salvation were the Assyrians, the most hated people on earth, the most cruel people at that time. 
renown. One of the kings of Assyria tells in his uh, uh, history of his conquest how he would skin the soldiers of his enemies, skin them, and then hang the skins on the walls of the conquered city so that women would have to walk by and see the skins of their sons and husbands. Utter cruelty. So that the, their enemies would not procreate. They would cut open pregnant women, forcing an abortion. If the mom lived or died, they didn't care. They were going to kill that baby. These are evil, evil people. And God saves them. And what of the tactic? It has not historically been an unexpected tactic, but it sure seems that way in Christianity in America today. Boy, if there's one thing we know, you shouldn't preach it, people. If there's one wrong way, if we, we may debate the right way to do evangelism, but we are all agreed that the wrong way to do it is to preach at them. That's just going to be a turnoff. It's amazing how much we saw in the book of Acts that the apostles went into these cities and preached and people became saved. And what do we see here with Jonah? He goes to Nineveh and he preaches the word of God. It's a head-scratcher. Psychologists can't tell you why it works. Sociologists don't understand the mechanism. It's a bewilderment. There's not one a public relations firm out there that'll tell you the way to get ahead is by preaching at your customers. And yet, that is the means of God's salvation. His word. The word of God, which brought creation into existence in the first place, is what brings new creation into existence. If people are going to be made new, if they're going to have their hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh, as Ezekiel talked about, there's only one place that can happen. And that is in the power of the word of God. The unexpected tactic is preaching. Jonah 4.1 but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Does it displease us when God saves our enemies? Does it displease us when God uh, uh, intervenes in the lives of those we hate? If you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son, Jonah's the older brother. He's the one sitting home, grumping and harumphing and complaining that the father is being nice to the son who wandered away and came back. Why would you throw a party for him? And that's who Jonah is here. I don't think for a moment this is the main point of the book of Jonah, but I do think this is a point. There is no place in Christianity for any sort of view of racial superiority. There is no place in the kingdom of God for any sort of nationalism. I'm not saying don't be proud of your nation. I'm not saying don't cheer it on. Root for it. Want it. Want it to be good. Want it to succeed. But don't believe for one moment that some, some, some subset of humanity is somehow more special in God's eyes than another. Another. 
And by the way, if you really do want to hold to your view that it's an us and them mentality, and they are our enemies, they are uh, standing in our way and keeping us from doing... What does the Bible say about enemies? Love them. The minute you hold to that view, it's undone. Jonah did not love his enemies. Chapter 4 is the story of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away. Jonah's sitting up on the hillside and there's a hot sun and a hot desert sun. And the Lord provides this vine that grows up and provides some shade for Jonah. And he's sitting under that vine and in that shade... And then the vine, then a a worm comes out and destroys and eats the vine. Now he's exposed to the sun. And Jonah laments the vine and is all upset that the vine has been destroyed. Jonah is at the center of Jonah's world. It's all about him. I don't want my enemies saved. And I don't want my vine taken away. God, you're doing it wrong. You're going about it in all the wrong ways. Remember what happened when Peter said that to Jesus? Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly and beautifully and correctly says, you are the son of the living God. And then Jesus immediately begins to teach them about his ministry, what that means he has to happen. And he says, the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed, and on the third day, rise again. And Peter says, you got it all wrong, Jesus. That's not how it goes. God's Messiah doesn't die. Come on. God's anointed one. We've been waiting for the anointed son of David. How can the anointed son of David possibly die? You've got it all wrong. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking like a man. The message of Jonah, the message to Jonah, and the message through Jonah, Stop looking at it with your human eyes. Stop looking at it with your self, uh, self-centered perspective. And see God's sovereign hand at work, saving whom he will save. Unexpected targets of his salvation. Pagans who know nothing of him. Prophets who wander from him. Assyrians who are the very enemies of him. These God saves. You know, the unexpected tactics of salvation are one of the key themes of the Bible. Throughout the scriptures, we are struck by the weirdness by which God operates. He functions through barren women. 90-year-old Sarah is going to have a son. Come on, God, there are easier ways to get it done. And then her, her, her daughter-in-law is barren. And then her daughter-in-law has uh, 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 twins. And the, the, the older one serves the younger one. The younger one becomes God. That's not the way it's done. But the land is promised to Abraham. 
At the end of his life, you know how much of it he owns? Sarah's grave. That's it. Not what he expected at all. You promised me this whole land. All I have is my wife's tomb. And the people go down to Egypt to be saved. And they are enslaved. But God sets them free and takes them to the shore of the Red Sea to drown. And then God saves them and puts them in the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And then God brings them to the land and they face the walled city of Jericho. And then God says, we're going to take it down by marching around it. And then they have to face the next challenge and the next challenge and the next challenge. And the people uh, around them are oppressing them and Gideon rises up and the Lord, and, and Gideon puts together an army and he's going to protect the people and God says, too many. Whittle it down. Get it down to 300. And by the way, you don't need to bother with swords, just some lamps and some broken pottery. That's all you need. And then God raises up a shepherd boy with a slingshot whose dad didn't even bother to bring him in. His own father thought him of no account when the prophet came. And over 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 again, the message of the scriptures is God is going to work his plan his way. And we need just wait on him. And it was in light of that that when the Pharisees said to Jesus, give us a sign, Jesus could think of nothing better than the sign of Jonah. You don't have any idea what's coming. I'm telling you I'm the Messiah. I'm telling you I'm the promised one. I'm telling you I am the Savior of the world. And you are so misunderstanding what that means, it's going to catch you so off guard, it's going to be as shocking as Jonah. He didn't see that fish as salvation, and you're not going to see my grave as salvation. And what happens on that Sunday morning? Even his own disciples, even his own disciples do not expect him to be alive. They go to the tomb with uh, 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 ointments and fragrances to adorn the decaying body. That's what they expect, and they're his followers. Jesus said, salvation of our God always, always, always comes in unexpected ways. And to unexpected targets. We'll close by flipping over to Romans chapter 5. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 8. Verses 8 and 10, actually, but verse 8 to start with. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Shocking and unexpected. And then in verse 10, Paul goes further and says it in a more blunt way. Not just that we were sinners, but look at verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled, shall be saved by his life. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death 
of his son. You and I are the unexpected targets of God's unexpected salvation that comes through the unexpected Christ who did the unexpected thing and died in our place. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear the message of the prophet Jonah this morning and see that you are a God who loves your enemies, be they the Assyrians or us. And you love them so that you are willing to warn them about the path that leads to destruction. And you have warned us about the path that leads to destruction. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts like the Assyrians, that we would repent of our sin and turn to you. We rejoice in the fact that you will relent of your anger, free us from it, and save us to yourself. Lord, we don't know what to say or do in light of that kind of love and that kind of grace. Let us soak it in and then let us ooze it out to everyone we meet, to everyone we encounter. Let it so become a part of us that it just pours out in our speech and in our behavior and in our songs and in our life. We pray this through the unexpected one. Amen.